are listening to The Concierge. Welcome. Coming up on today's programme, our travel experts answer your questions and bring you the latest travel headlines. We explore the delights of Helsinki's most delicious food and drink destinations. I really love this place. You can come here any time of the evening and eat something small, eat a long dinner, have an expensive bottle of great wine or just one glass of something simple. And keeping things cool, we travel to San Moritz for ski season without the skis. It's very sunny and the ice is melting, but I am told that it's at a safe 45 centimetres. So even though I'm standing in a puddle, I think everyone is going to be okay. Plus, we make like Kraftwerk and board our very own Trans Europe Express, complete with bar and sleeping car. That is all to come on the Concierge in association with Allianz Partners. Welcome to Monocle's The Concierge with me, Robert Bounds, and I'm joined today in Marrakesh by the luxury travel expert, Alex Wicks, director of Wicks Squared, tailor-made holiday specialists. And here with me in the studio is Alexis Self, Monocle's foreign editor. Um, welcome both to the programme. Alex, I'll start with you. How is the weather in Morocco today? Have you, uh, have you breakfasted uh, handsomely and are you basking in some sunshine or will you be after this programme? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's, um, it's about 30 degrees outside, sun shining. I definitely can't complain. Uh, quite unusually warm for this time of year and the snow is still on the top of the Atlas Mountains, so it's absolutely stunning. Oh, you paint a beautiful picture. Now, we know why travel experts live in Marrakesh, right? This goes with the territory. I like this. Um, Lex, lovely to have you on on the programme. Would you like to say hello to the listeners? Hi, the Rob. listening several. Hello, hello, listeners. And we're starting with our uh, passport stamped. Where was your passport last stamped? As the foreign editor, I'm presuming there's somewhere, uh, somewhere fairly exotic, perhaps. Well, rather prosaically, it's at the Gare du Nord station in Paris. Perhaps, actually, quite an elegant and classy place to be stamped, but, yeah. but not very far away from where we're sitting. A stone's throw or spitting distance, depending upon uh, the, your metaphorical courage. <laughs> what was the occasion? Was this, was this a, a self-break or was this working self? This was a self-break. My stepmother lives in the 10th arrondissement. Nice. Uh, so I just popped over there for a day, really, and I was back at my desk the following morning. Okay, sounds like you're quite keen to tell the powers that be on this programme that you're hard at work and that the 10th arrondissement is close enough for it to be a working distance. Yeah, and they okay. have excellent 5G connection in Paris. Um, it's good stuff. And Alex, as sort of luxury travel expert... Courtesy of Wix Squared, perhaps. Where was your passport last stamped? Well, I, I was away last week in Switzerland skiing in Zermatt. So I, my last stamp was coming back into Marrakesh. Nice. And, and tell us a little bit, actually, about your time there. We've got, we're, we're going to Samaritz a little bit later in this programme, the duelling kings of the Swiss mountain resort world, perhaps. Tell us about where you stayed in Zermatt, perhaps. Well, we actually stayed in a, an apartment there. My my husband's been skiing in Zermatt sort of every year since he was about four years old, so knows it very well. And we often stay with friends or family out there. It's one of the, the beauties of it is, is knowing everyone so well. We know all the restaurateurs on the mountain, know where to go to eat, have great meals. The snow is fantastic. As there's so many pluses about Zermatt. Obviously, being on a glacier, you've got snow year round as well. There are some great hotels, but a lot more flexibility with dining out as well. OK, thank you uh, both for uh, letting us know about uh, your last passport stamp. We're going to move things on here on the concierge. It's time to open the concierge desk. OK, and first up, Alex, we're going back to you. We've got a question from Canada, and this is listener Kate. 
I'm going to Morocco for the first time in May 2023. Do you have any cafe and bar recommendations for Marrakesh and Fez? Well, I'm presuming, hoping, Alex, <laughs> in Marrakesh, the answer is yes. Can you open your little black book for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in both cities, there are some incredible restaurants and bars and cafes to go to. But what I would actually say is one thing that is a must in in both cities is to see the street food as well. And in Fez, we, we do an amazing street food tasting trail in the souks where you can go and explore the honey souks and taste all the different types of honey that are made from different flowers within the local region. As well as in Marrakesh, obviously, you've got the main square, the Jamal Fanar, which opens up in the evenings when all the food stalls open up and you've got anything from local tagine through to sheep's brains or offal kebabs. And so depending how adventurous you want to be, there's something for everyone. And the beauty of it is also the, the atmosphere. But further afield than that, if you're not feeling as adventurous to want to have street food, then there's some great restaurants in Fez. You've got there's Jungle, which does some wonderful cocktails on the roof terrace looking over the city of Fez. In Marrakesh, equally one of my favourite bars for cocktails is a place called Barometer. That's actually controversial. It's on underground mm-hmm. and they do some amazing, sort of really inspirational cocktails. They're served in all sorts of weird and wonderful vessels. There's some great um, Moroccan restaurants. There's Al Fasia, which is only run by women. Really great local food, quite a formal setting. If you wanted something a bit more lightweight, there's the Trumia, which is also in the Medina. They've got a lovely roof terrace. They have both a, a Western menu and a Moroccan menu with foods that have been taken through generations. And you'll only get one tagine. The rest is really unusual things like stuffed spleen and and then a take on sort of a shepherd's pie. They do a Berber shepherd's pie with pulled lamb. I mean, I could go on and on. There are so many amazing places to eat in, in both cities. I think that sounds amazing. Thanks, Alex. And I think whether we're Welsh or whether we're Kiwi, we defer to the Berbers when it comes to shepherd's pie, right? Go to the heat of the action. Lex, we've got one for you. This is also from Canada. This is Jonathan. I'm planning a vacation to Italy in May, which will include the city of Naples. Do you have any suggestions to explore this city, which seems to suffer from a bad reputation? Jonathan there, a little bit nervous. Nervous traveller, perhaps. He's going to Naples. Yeah. Apart from needing his wallet on a chain. (laughs) I I, I digress. And it's not true because it's a wonderful city. What have you got up your sleeve for us in Naples, Lex? It is a wonderful city. And I suppose, like Marrakesh, it has a reputation for being quite rambunctious. But Mm. I I would say that's a good thing. And, you know, not to start some kind of slanging war, but lots of cities in Italy perhaps have suffered from mass tourism. Whereas Naples has managed to retain its soul somewhat. First of all, the natural setting is just phenomenal. You know, the sweeping bay with Vesuvius, the main player of the scene, looming moodily over the whole setting. It's such a, a beautiful natural setting that the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche was actually moved to tears when he disembarked in Naples in 1876. You know, here's a man not known for his sentimentality. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and, and it's, so my advice would be to find high ground, to feast your eyes on, on the whole Bay of Naples. You can go to the top of Castel Sant'Elmo for this. Mm-hmm. It's this quite brutal-looking Bourbon fort which looms over the old town. But from there, you can see it all, the whole of the city. You know, the thing about Naples is it's had quite a tough history. It's been invaded a lot. It's had volcanic explosions, obviously. 
and it was very badly bombed during the Second World War. And because of this, it doesn't have the kind of uniformity and the kind of um, intact architecture, perhaps, of Florence or even Rome. But because of that, it's got this kind of bricolage of architectural styles that kind of reflects its very varied history. So the centre of Naples, the Centro Storico, is the largest intact walled city centre in Europe. And it's still on the ancient Greek grid system. And oh, wow, I didn't realise yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's... And, and, and perhaps that's the image that you have, the kind of classic image of Naples, of, of the buildings almost kissing yeah. one another and the dark alley. And then, and then across the whole of the old town, there's a um, horizontal street they're called Spacianapoli, which runs the whole way through. And if you stand on it, you can look in both directions, miles I love the... that. Almost those sort of like urban canyons that you get in Manhattan. Where you exactly. Can, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. you realise that actually that's an ancient way of building a place so that you do have those occasional kind of jaw-dropping vistas yeah. like miles down the street. So definitely just walk around the centre of Naples and... You know, there's so many beautiful churches. I'm getting hungry, though. Well, Have you got a restaurant on yours? I would point people in to, up to Vomero and Pizza Gorizia, okay. but one of my favourite pizzas I've ever had. Of course, you have to eat pizza in Naples. Mm. For me, it's got to be Starita, Pizza Starita, which is in Matade, which is actually not in the centre. It's a bit further out, and, and it's a bit more... Rough and ready around there, but the pizza. Tell me, you're just he is gesticulating in the in the uh, studio, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, you could go. There's the more genteel ducking and diving. I'd almost say exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's the more genteel environs of Sorbillo, which is the most famous, and there's two branches of Sorbillo, and then there's also Pizza San Michele, which is from Rob, your favourite film, Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One thing I would implore you to do if you're in Naples is to go to Piazza del Plebiscito and blindfolded, try and walk through. There's two big statues of horsemen in the oh, middle yeah. of, of the square. And if you stand about 50 metres away from them, they're about 75 metres apart. Blindfold and try and walk through the middle. I guarantee you will fail. Um, So thank you to Jonathan from Canada and likewise to Kate, who asked about Fez in Marrakesh. Thanks to Lex and Alex in Marrakesh. And if you can stick around, we're going to have the travel headlines coming up a little bit later in the programme. Up next, though, on the concierge, it is Dining District. Dining districts now, and off to Helsinki's Punovuari, a bohemian neighbourhood of young creatives and artists, one of the Finnish capital's most fascinating food and drink destinations, in fact. We dispatched our correspondent in the city, Petri Burtsov, to discover what the neighbourhood has to offer. He was joined by Kenneth Nars, a local food writer and entrepreneur. Punovuari in southern Helsinki has a lot going for it. New restaurants, bakeries, cafes and bars are opening almost on a weekly basis to cater to its young and vibrant population. I set out on a tour of some of the neighborhood's hotspots with Kenneth Nars, a local food writer and the co-founder of the restaurant guide app World of Mouth. So Kenneth, where are we going to head next? Uh, so we are going to Canvas Canteen, a uh, lunch restaurant which is uh, just a few months old. All right, let's go in. All right, here we are. Hello. 
Hello, welcome to Canvas Canteen. <laughs> Thank you so much. We're sitting in one of the tables right now and there's an open open kitchen that we're looking at with lots of beautiful in ingredients. It has this really, really cozy and homely homely feel and, 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 and the people are there preparing the, the dishes. Yeah, this is, I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, the kitchen is like really, really tiny here, not with any big fans or even stoves here. So they basically uh, plan their food and dishes really efficiently here and economically and then uh, they serve I mean salads a few a stew uh, a soup soup of the day and then some nice pastry and a cup of coffee I sat down with Kenneth over a plate of trout with kohlrabi and cauliflower in Mornay sauce to discuss what it is that makes Punavori such a great food and drink destination well, I mean, Punavuori's background is actually really, that's really like working class, harbor, close to the harbor and the docks. So, and used to have sort of a sketchy reputation back in the days. So here, I would say definitely not anything posh and fancy, but more like uh, old school bakeries, cafes, uh, super, I mean, great uh, Neapolitan pizza, wine bars, uh, and uh, yeah, call it like hipster cafes and so, so that kind of places. Kenneth, we are again um, in the streets of Punavori and I see we're standing in front of a restaurant with Japanese writing in the window. What is this place? So this is uh, restaurant Kamome and it's a uh, proper Japanese small uh, restaurant, relaxed casual restaurant in, in Punavori. All right, let's go in. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the, the cuisine um, here and, and why you have chosen this as, as one of your picks. I think this is, I mean, this is, it's authentic and it's sort of homely and home cooking. Um, yeah, I mean, you get pretty much all, not so much sushi and things, which they also have, but I mean, the, the dons, the, the, the rice bowls, uh, the ramen soups, um, tonkotsu, the fried uh, pork cutlet. I mean, very just like everyday Japanese food. That's what you get here. Okay, Kenneth, uh, where are we heading next? So we're now going to uh, Bus Bus or Basket and Basso Bistro, uh, a super uh, famous and popular wine bar. Let's go in. This is one of the hardest to get tables in town. Uh, and for the simple reason that, I mean, this is a super nice place. It's open from four in the afternoon until way after midnight. Uh, wine bar, super simple bistro fare, mostly natural wines and great vibe. Um, and I, mm, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's actually been voted at least once, maybe twice or maybe three times as the best restaurant in, in Finland. That's how, how popular it is. Yeah, best restaurant or not, I mean, it's definitely the, the most popular restaurant in Helsinki. And uh, yeah, they have a, a quite slightly similar wine bar downstairs as well, uh, belonging to the same, same people with similar wines. Um, yeah, but this is, I really love this place. You can come here any time of the evening and uh, eat something small, eat a long dinner, uh, have an expensive bottle of great wine or just one glass of something simple. In addition to the three places that you have picked for us to visit, what other uh, recommendations would you have in terms of restaurants and bars and cafes? Well, I would say, um, yeah, I mean, go, go to some of... There's a, just a few 
one or two or three of the old uh, like so-called sailor pubs still here uh, just going for a beer in one of those would be really a step back into the past um, then I would uh, check out some of the bakeries like uh, Levan um, then Kanniston Leipomo really old school Finnish uh, Helsinki neighborhood bakery there is much to see and do in the Finnish capital but Helsinki also features a vibrant and fascinating restaurant scene and the neighborhood of Punavori is a great place to take it all in. For Monocle in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov. Just like the Monocle team, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences. Allianz Partners' reputation for excellence and the continuous drive to innovate means the business is uniquely equipped to accompany its partners and customers with their ever-changing travel needs. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. Allianz Partners. Get the most out of your experience with peace of mind. The lowdown now, where we shine a spotlight on a must-visit destination. Of course, it's still ski season in Samaritz at the moment, with that perfect mix of glamour and pristine nature. But this time of year is not just about winter sports. We sent Monocle's Tom Webb up the mountain without a pair of skis to see what the region has to offer. Samaritz is a year-round destination, whether escaping the summer city heat or trying out one of the world's most exclusive ski resorts. But if, like me, you don't have ski legs, this time of year is the perfect time for a cultural fix. Like most destinations in Switzerland, on the rails is the best way to travel, and if journeying in from Zurich, sit on the left for an hour-long view of Lake Zurich, and always check if your service has a dining carriage before you go. We're now pulling up to Samaritz very shortly on the train. I'm delighted to say I'm sitting opposite Chiara Ramella, who is the executive editor of Monocle. Please tell us what we can expect culturally from Samaritz. The wonderful Fair Nomad has just wrapped up, but there's still plenty of things on the calendar to keep you entertained. Of course, should you want to come back for Nomad next year, the appointment still stands, but... There are plenty of galleries in town that have programming that extends for the whole season. Uh, Hauser & Worth is very active here in Switzerland, of course. It's home patch. And in Samaritz, they always have really interesting exhibitions. At the moment, a particularly interesting initiative. They have an installation they call the Roth Bar, which consists of a kind of a ramshackle collection of items that have been put into a functioning bar so you can pull up a chair and actually get yourself a little cocktail in the meantime. There's also Vito Schnabel's gallery in town that's always worth checking out and then if you want to extend further into the valley a new institution relatively new institution is the Museum Sush this is a really fantastic place that used to be a brewery and a monastery and has been turned into quite an experimental institution with a fairly kind of concrete heavy architecture so it's got like a minimalist and an edge to it as well and it's very focused on female artists and I think that it's really changed the landscape of the culture in the valley as a whole so do make your way up the valley and you won't regret the pilgrimage. Well we're just approaching now it's looking cold outside let's grab our coats grab our bags and see what we can find. 
I'm walking across the ice here on San Moritz Lake. You can probably hear the cars that are streaming around me. This is for the Ice Festival, where 50 vintage cars race around the lake at high speed. It's the second time only they've done this festival. They've been wanting one here since 1985, and now they're going to do it every single year. It's packed. There are thousands of spectators here. People are buying cars. People are watching them speed around the ice. And it's very sunny, and the ice is melting. But I am told that it's at a safe 45 centimeters where the actual cars are. So even though I'm standing in a puddle, I think everyone is going to be okay. For lunch, if the idea of catching a ski lift for fresh fish seems unusual, the newly opened stunning Langosteria restaurant is a new must-book-early dining experience in town, as is the new members-only straight-out-of-the-movies Gucci Lounge at the old favourite Paradiso. And in a few weeks, the Alpine Metropolis will also see an addition of a sixth five-star hotel. I think it's really a little city where you don't miss anything. It's really comparable to big cities, but it's on 28.7 square kilometers and surrounded by the beautiful nature and on 1,856 meters. And I think this is what it makes so special because we are offering very strong cultural events yeah, the tradition of the brand, the service quality that we have in our hotels. We have six five-star hotels in the valley, and I think this is something unique, comparable to big cities, but still in the middle of nowhere. Actually, I prefer summer than winter because it's uh, quieter and colorful. We have all the colors from the lakes to the sun and blue of the skies. And it's really, you can do many more things than you actually can do in winter. So kite surfing, visiting all the events, the art galleries, doing um, yoga in a forest or at a lake shore. So all these things, jumping into not freezing, but a cold lake early in the morning. I think these are all things that are very special and you can see in summer. We have also very special jewels, all these things and all these undiscovered pearls I would suggest for summer. For the train back down the mountain, try and seek out the glass ceiling carriage at the front of the train and maybe use the time to rebook for those summer months. From Samaritz, for Monocle, I'm Tom Webb. Time for travel news now, and Alex Wicks is still with us with the latest headlines in travel. First of all, we're going to keep it close to home, for you at least, and Morocco is amongst the top destinations for French tourists. Do we say quel surprise? I would say no, not really. I mean, obviously, until recently, French was the the second official language of the country. It's actually just changed a few months ago to English, but it's still incredibly widely spoken here, so that would be a natural draw but much nicer climate, hotter for most of the year than, than France. 
And so, yeah, I, I'm not surprised by that at all. And it's easily accessible. There's a lot of direct flights from France into Morocco. And I see quite a lot of French, both as tourists and as expats out here. So that's um, probably quite an obvious choice, I would say. And the Bulgari Hotel, that is due to open or it's opening in Tokyo in reaction to increased demand from international tourists. Well, I suppose the Japanese doors have, have opened of late. What kind of world are we in with the Bulgari, Alex? Yeah, I think, as you just said, it Japan was one of the last countries to open its doors post the pandemic. And I think there's been a sort of mad rush to get there, particularly for the cherry blossom season, the high season. And so the Bulgari's timed this really very well, where there's just... Uh, so much demand and you know they've got some fantastic hotels all around the world and Tokyo is a great place for them to fit into the market and they're not going to be short of guests and, and inquiries to the extent that I think we've actually started turning away inquiries for March, April, the last minute now because we just can't find the space or the top guides because it's such a popular place to travel. Finally, Ramadan starts on Thursday. What does that mean if people want to come to Muslim countries, you know, across the region? I think it really depends on which country you're looking at travelling to. There are many Muslim countries that carry on almost as if normal. And I think a lot of people shy away from travelling to destinations during Ramadan that they feel might be affected by this. Morocco very much, from a tourist point of view, carries on as normal. All the restaurants and bars are still open You can experience what iftar is like in the evenings, the breaking of the fast. There's actually a lot going for it at that time of year. It's a great place to go and often actually less busier because people are under the pretense that they think that it's not a good time to go. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your expert roundup on our travel news section. That was Alex Wicks from Wicks Squared on the line from Marrakesh. Thank you very much, Alex. And finally, on the concierge, it is time for A Letter From, which is our weekly dispatch from our correspondents and contributors from destinations all across the world. This time, Charlotte MacDonald Gibson, Monocle's correspondent in The Hague, takes us for a ride through the ever-expanding world of Europe's night trains, where a new golden age of green travel may be on the horizon, with the couchette firmly back in business. I like to think of myself as a train person. I grew up on the romance of long-distance rail travel, watching the old James Bond films and dreaming of crisscrossing Europe on luxurious night trains, spending long evenings in railway dining cars, rooting out undercover spies. Why is that bomb on the train? Who are you? I'm British Secret Service. My early experiences in long-distance rail were, however, a little more down at heel. In my backpacker days, I was often found sleeping on the sticky floor of an overnight rail service across Spain, or singing karaoke with an off-duty policeman in the raucous, but not particularly elegant, canteen car of the sleeper services in Thailand. But by the time I'd reached the age and income bracket where I might have been able to allow myself an upgrade, we had entered a long fallow period for overnight rail travel in Europe. As one by one the routes closed down, the ubiquitous five euro airfares and proliferation of low-cost carriers tempting people away from the rails and into the skies. Now, however, we appear to be in the grip of a resurgence. Rising flight prices, concerns over the environmental impact of planes and a trend for slow travel have put the couchette firmly back in business. Austria's national rail company, OBB, has led the way with its night jet, 
reintroducing the Brussels-Vienna overnight route in 2020 to much fanfare as Eurocrats stepped off the inaugural journey, hailing a new golden age for green travel. That success has led to an ever-growing number of routes by the Austrian service, and the Netherlands, where I'm based, is a great starting point. Right now, I can travel to Innsbruck, Vienna and Zurich by night train all year round. OBB announced a record summer in 2022, with a 17% rise on long-distance travel compared to the pre-pandemic days. It's now investing 4 billion euros in new rolling stock and new overnight services across its network, including to Italy, Hungary and Croatia. Others are taking note. During the winter months, tour operator TUI offers an overnight ski train from Amsterdam to destinations across the Austrian Alps. New operators are emerging. The Utrecht-based European Sleeper raised €500,000 in seed capital within 15 minutes of releasing its shares in 2021. It launches its Brussels-Amsterdam-Berlin night train this May and plans to follow with routes in Scandinavia. So this is undoubtedly a resurgence. But is it really the revolution in travel that some suggest? There are certainly a few hurdles to overcome before a mass abandonment of the skies. Firstly, there's a lack of rolling stock. There are simply not enough sleeper cars to meet demand. Then there is a lack of interest from some of the bigger operators. I spoke to John Worth, who runs the Trains for Europe project, campaigning for policies to promote night trains in Europe. He tells me that while smaller operators like OBB have sensed a gap in the market, the larger operators, the ones with lobbying clout with the European Union, are reluctant to move into the area. There is demand from leisure customers, but not so much from the usually more profitable business clientele. Plus, costs to run night trains are higher than daytime trains, so you do not make much profit. So if you're Deutsche Bahn or Francis SNCF, you prioritise what makes most money, and that's daytime TGVs and ICEs. And for the consumer, price also remains an issue. If I wanted to take my family to Berlin on the European sleeper in May on the tickets that remain available, it would cost just short of €500 Euros one way. EasyJet would get us there for half the price. And then there's the experience itself. I've taken the night jet twice in the past year to Austria, and while it is undoubtedly a lot of fun, especially for travelling with kids, it does not exactly fulfil my youthful dreams of romantic rail travel. There is no dining car, just a few microwave hot dogs available to eat off your lap. In the more pricey private compartments, you do get a little complimentary bottle of German sparkling wine, but it was frankly undrinkable. And sleep definitely eluded me, with the stopping and starting, the yellow glare of station lights, and the traips down the corridor for any nighttime bathroom visits. I didn't wake up refreshed and ready to explore a new city, rather more sleep-deprived, somewhat bedraggled, and adrift with my luggage as I waited hours for my hotel check-in. Comfort has to be improved if operators are to lure the all-important business traveller to switch to the rails. An opinion backed up by a recent survey by the Delft University of Technology, which found that increased comfort and privacy would be enticing factors. But I'm not giving up. Like many travellers, I've had enough of the long queues at understaffed European airports, and I like my new ritual of a leisurely dinner at a schnitzel restaurant at Amsterdam Station, setting the scene for my alpine jaunts before that always thrilling moment of settling into the carriage as the whistle blows. I'm just hoping that something will adapt. If not the comfort of the trains, then at least my sleeping patterns.
And that is all for today's edition of The Concierge. Thanks to our panel, Alex Wicks and Alexis Self. Our producers were Tom Webb and Monica Lillis and our studio manager, David Stevens. If you have a question for The Concierge, drop us an email on concierge at monocle.com. And do join us next time. We'll be on the streets of Beirut in the new bars and restaurants readying for the return of tourists. I've been Robert Bounds. Thank you very much for tuning in and happy travels. Thank you.